last week we started a new series, right? Life in reverse and working our way towards Christmas to where we finally uh, get to the birth of Christ. And last week Blake talked about how Jesus' resurrection reminds us that we often think, what we often think at the end, it's really the beginning, right? It's really the beginning. And if we take a moment to realize that we are at our new beginning, then how do we get to our preferred ending, How do we get to our preferred ending? And if we continue to look at the life of Jesus in reverse, we can begin to figure that out. How do we get to that ending? Um, And so the passage that we're going to look at today, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 32 through 54. I wonder if we have the whole passage. Nope. Well, and guess what? That is my fault. You know why that's my fault? Because I put in bold here what needs to be on the PowerPoint slide, and that is not in bold. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to summarize what happens, right? Hey, that's how we're going to work around this. Here's what what happens, right? Jesus has now been accused. He's going to be crucified on the cross. And so um, he carries the cross right up to the top, and he's on the cross, and the soldiers um, who put him up there uh, cast lots for his clothes, and, and the people are scolding him, and the people are walking by and hurling insults at him. And even the leaders and the Pharisees, they're mocking him, right? And they're saying, if you who say you can build a temple in three days, why don't you just come down off the cross? <laughs> right? Why don't you come down off the cross? And he does it, and then, and then Jesus breathes his final breath, and he, and he dies to death. But then after that, it says that the earth shook, right? The earth shook. And people came out of the graves. And the power of God was recognized. And people said, truly, this is the Son of God. And when I look at this story, Jesus did, um, Blake, Blake shared his notes. He's preaching the same one over at Midland. And over at Midland, uh, when he shared his notes with me, he did a pretty good job making me realize that I am no better than the soldiers and the people and the leaders that that mocked Jesus and scolded him and hurled insults at him, that I'm no better (laughs) As a matter of fact, I was reminded of a time uh, 15 years ago, the summer of 2001, I was uh, playing baseball in a tournament in Marietta, Illinois. And this was a really big moment in my life because at this baseball tournament, my family took a trip to an Amish rock garden. And at this Amish rock garden, a chicken beat me in tic-tac-toe. This is a true story. There was, uh, it's all, and the sad thing is, it's all caught on camera. And last time I preached, I showed a video of me, you know, failing at teaching my son how to ride a bike. I could have had this video for you, but it was a little hard to follow. It was a lot of background noise. But basically, we're there, and there's this chicken in a booth, a glass booth. And you can go up, and on the outside of the booth, there's a tic-tac-toe board. All right? So you push the button where you want to go, and then the chicken with his beak pushes a button where he wants to go. All right? And then every time he pushed the button, he got a little piece of food. And my dad's sitting there filming it. My mom's right there. And all of a sudden, you hear in the video, I make a move. My mom goes, oh, wrong move, Jeff. I was like, what? And sure enough, that chicken beat me in tic-tac-toe. I was 15 years old, and I got lost. I lost to a chicken. But the worst part about it, caught on camera, is I accused a chicken of cheating. Right? <laughs> I claimed that the chicken went two times in a row. I accused the chicken of cheating. Right? How crazy is that? I think I remember even saying, well, I couldn't really see on the tic-tac-toe board the way the sun was reflecting. I couldn't really see where he went. And so I just, how often do we re- deflect our own insecurities, right? That embarrassment I had, I couldn't just admit defeat. I had to deflect, right? I had to deflect my own securities, insecurities, and, and put the blame on 
the chicken, right? And if we think about it, this is really what's going on when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Placing blame to deflect our own insecurities. Jesus was God's lamb, but he was the people's scapegoat, right? We understand a scapegoat to be the person made to bear the blame of others. The person made to bear the blame of others. And because of Jesus' situation, the soldiers could profit without care at his expense. The passerbys could scold at his expense, and the leaders could mock at his expense. So let's take a look, a closer look at what the soldiers did, right? So here we see here, there, there the soldiers offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Wine mixed with gall was what they used in those days as numbing medicine for crucifixion. Anybody who was crucified, it was a numbing medicine. And how fitting is it that these soldiers would offer Jesus this numbing medicine? And it's fitting because the irony is is that the soldiers themselves are so numb to the pain and the suffering that's really going on. The Greek word used for soldiers in this case is stratatoye. This particular term is specifically used in the New Testament for uh, specifically used for soldiers who were <clears throat> the Roman soldiers that carried out any kind of brutal acts of violence. They carried out the punishment. They weren't just regular Roman soldier guards. They were actual soldiers where it was their job to execute the punishment, to flog, to crucify. This is their, prof- this is their um, career, right? This is what they do for a living, crucifixion. It is so common for them that they are that numb to the pain and the realities of what's happening before them that someone's crucified on a cross and they're just sitting there casting lots for the clothes like nothing's going on. That they can just look the other way. And when you look at it, you begin to realize that I think we're guilty of that too. Things that are so commonplace in our society, right here in our own community or in our world, it's so common that we are numb to the pain and the realities of the stories that are happening around us. We're so numb to it that it's easy for us to look the other way. We're so numb to it that we think we can offer, just like the soldiers, they offered him numbing medicine. They offered something, and therefore they can say they did something. But we are so numb to the real pains and the stories happening around us that oftentimes we offer something that we think is an offering, but it's really not. It doesn't fix the real problem. It's not a real solution, right? How guilty are we of this? Numb to the real pain of those around us that we offer some kind of numbing medicine that doesn't solve the problem. It gives us a way to really ignore the problem. We realize we're no better than those soldiers. And then we can take a look at the other people, right? The passerbys. Let's take a look at uh, Matthew 27, verse 39 through 40 and verse 44. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. How ironic is that, that the criminals up there are even turning to Jesus and doing the same thing the passerbys are. They're gaining up as a crowd and they're heaping these insults on him. And if we talk about scapegoat, this reminds me of a documentary that some of you guys may have seen. And given that the Cubs won the World Series, right, and broke their, you know, 100-year-plus curse of not going to the World Series or not winning the World Series, this reminds me of a documentary I watched called uh, Catching Hell. It was on ESPN 30 for 30. And it's about when the Cubs in 2003 were one game away from going to the World Series and breaking that curse. 
And there's an incident that happened in that baseball game. And I want to, I've got just a short clip from that documentary. I want us to take a look at this. Well, the Cubs had won their first playoff series since the winning the World Series in 08. They beat Atlanta in five games. Kerry Wood won two of the games, basically almost single-handedly uh, put them into the next round. So once they got to the NLCS, you know, Chicago was just going nuts. Uh, take a 3-1 lead, prior pitching a two-hitter into the eighth inning. The Cubs up 3-0 at that point. And, uh, I mean, just all hell broke loose after that foul ball. The Luis Castillo hits a foul ball down the right field, left field line. Um, you know, the fans go for it, bounces off one fan's hands. Um, Moises jumps up in the air, slams down his mitt, makes a big scene. Pryor's pointing. Uh, it's just like everyone's blaming this one guy who's got the headphones on. And, uh, you know, we're in the press box. We can see down there. We, we don't know exactly who they're you know reacting to but then of course they showed the replay fortunately about five zillion times uh and then once play resumed prior might have been his first pitch was a wild pitch uh there's definitely a wild pitch in that sequence uh and then he just gave it up uh the ground ball to alex gonzalez double play ball you know would have you know sealed everything but uh just booted it. It just totally fell apart from there. Eight run inning. By that point, the whole ballpark is sitting there just in silence and screaming. They had to escort poor Bartman out of the park. Uh, and the story turned basically from Cubs going to the World Series to this one guy blew it for us, even though the pitchers gave up, you know, eight runs and the shortstop booted the ball, and but everything was, you know, pointing towards this one poor guy, and it's it's going to be forever known as the Bartman game. Fair, it's not fair to him, probably. But I mean, people are always going to remember that as probably one of the most memorable games and one of the worst moments in uh, Cubs history. The other parts of that documentary that show people throwing beer at him, the whole stadium was, was chanting slogans and chanting insults at him. The entire stadium turned on him. They had to escort him out. You saw in the video there that he had to go into hiding, right? He became the scapegoat for the Cubs. He, all the blame was put on him. And the Cubs blew their chance to go in the World Series that year because of that one incident. Regardless of the fact that the shortstop committed an error and that gave up runs, regardless of the fact that the people right next to Bartman were reaching for the same ball. But he's the one that deflected the ball. He's the one that took the blame. And it's easy to look. When I watched that documentary, I remember looking at it and being, how awful are these people in that stadium to treat this guy that way over a ball game? How awful are they? But as I was doing my studying for this sermon, I began to realize that I am no better than those people. Because how often have I done that in my own setting? As a coworker at work, in my circle of friends, how often, it, uh, how easy it is to, to look at one person's situation and 
put blame on that person or gossip about that person. Because really what it is, is it's, it's easy to deflect our own issues by focusing on someone else's issues. It's easy to avoid justice for that one person so that we can escape condemnation for ourselves. And it's so easy to join in with others doing that, whether it's because we're deflecting our own issues and our own problems and we don't want people to know that, or because we have a fear of backlash from those people if we don't join in with them. We're no better than the people passing by Jesus and together scolding him and hurling insults at him. We are no better than the people at Wrigley Field on that day when that happened because we do it ourselves. I know I have, right? In our own settings, in our own situations, right? Even the accused criminals joined in. And what did they even gain from it? What did they even gain from it? Have you ever gossiped? High school, oh man, high school? We're talking about cyberbullying? Yo, it's real. It is real. I mean, these kids are no better than the passerbys scolding Jesus. When we're at work talking about other coworkers, we are no better. We are no better. And then we look at the leaders. The leaders mocking Jesus at his expense. Let's look at uh, 27, verse 41 through 43. In the same way the chief priests, the leaders, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And, you know, above the cross, we learned earlier in verse 37 that they wrote the charge, Jesus, the king of the Jews. This is a power play by these Jewish leaders. A power play to let the people see, look, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He claimed to be your God, but look at him stuck up on a cross. He can't even save himself. It's a power play. These leaders are threatened by the presence of Jesus. They're threatened by what Jesus brings to the table. They're in competition with Jesus. These leaders are afraid of losing their power. And because of that, they are blind to the signs that Jesus has been showing them all along. They're blind to that. How often do we, in a position of power, authority, or in a a reason to want to be kind of at the top of our game, do we deflect our own fear of losing that authority, our own fear of losing that respect from other people? People who esteem us as high, respected leaders, how often do we fear losing that, that we deflect our own insecurities and our own issues and we deflect it onto someone else? That's what we do. It's in our nature to deflect ourselves. These leaders of the law had their own insecurities that they felt threatened by. And if Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, then that makes us some pretty crappy people. Because these people were doing it to Jesus, but I think we do it in our own settings all the time. And that makes us no better than the people who watched all this happen and joined in on it. It makes us no better. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he had a different plan. Thanks be to God. The people didn't just make him the scapegoat figuratively. He was the scapegoat literally. These people were deflecting their own issues and casting blame and and calling him out and Jesus making him the scapegoat, but literally he was the scapegoat. If we look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, right? 
says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, whatever that phrase is, <laughs> which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is a reason Jesus says this. <laughs> the term scapegoat comes from an Old Testament. When the goat was released into the wilderness after the priest cast the sins of the community onto it. It was a regulation that God had put in place to atone for the sins of all the community. And it comes from Leviticus. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 20 through 22. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. Jesus was our scapegoat, literally. Not just figuratively with people placing the blame on him, but literally he bore all the sin onto himself, and that is why God had to forsake him. God cannot mess with unholiness. God cannot, unholiness cannot be in the presence of God. And in that very hour, Jesus bore all the sin of the people on him, right? If we look at Colossians 2.14, if we look at Colossians 2.14, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. He took our sins on himself and nailed it to the cross. We look at the verse in Deuteronomy. Right. You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because here's what's important. Because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. When Jesus was on that cross, he literally was under God's curse. Bearing the sins of the community. Not just our sins today, not just those sins at that time, but in that moment of people hurling the insults at him, he is in that moment actually absorbing it. Not deflecting it, he's absorbing it himself and he is under God's curse so much that he has to say my God my God why have you forsaken me because God literally forsake him and had to abandon his one and only begotten son he bore that for us the fact that he even refused the numbing medicine when I said the soldiers gave him the wine mixed with gall, that numbing medicine, Jesus refused it. He refused it so he could bear the full brunt of it. <laughs> but lucky for us, the scapegoat, being the scapegoat, he became the lamb. He became the sacrificial lamb. Instead of just being released into the wilderness like the scapegoat was, Jesus stayed on the cross and became the sacrificial atonement for our sins. <laughs> If we look at Matthew 27, verse 50 through 51. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rock split. I'm going to ask Sharonette and Vanya, I hope you all don't bail on me here. Where are you guys at? They said they'd come up here. Yeah, there we go. Vanya had to leave. Jason, will you? Here, oh, say it'll be fine. Here, share that. Stay down here. All right. This right here, just open that up. It's a curtain. That curtain right there is our greatest barrier to God. That curtain right there is our greatest barrier to our preferred ending. 
That curtain is the greatest barrier to the beginning that we have in Christ. Because the purpose of this curtain in the Old Testament was that it separated from people from the most holy place in the temple. That no one could stand in the presence of God because of their sin, because of their unholiness, that God could not be in their presence, right? And that if they were in God's presence, they would just die on the spot. That the only way you can make a sacrifice for your sins was to pass it off to the most high priest who could then take it to the altar and sacrifice it. So as you're trying to make atonement for your sins and for your wrongdoings, and you bring it to the altar, you had to stop at the curtain and pass that off. You could not stand in the presence of God. This is our greatest barrier. Now, Sharonette and Sailor, I want you to shake that curtain, because we know that when Jesus gave up his spirit, the earth shook, right? Shake it as hard as you can to where you tear it. You got to tear it. No, shake it harder. No, you're not. No, you got to tear it. Okay, the thing about this curtain in the most holy place in the temple, you guys can shut it down now. <laughs> Y'all are weak. <laughs> huh? You oh, you can sit down too. <laughs> this curtain was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide, and over an inch thick. And the scripture tells us it tore in place from top to bottom. What could that mean other than our greatest barriers removed? Our greatest barrier is no longer there. Could you imagine that time when you're trying to make sacrifice for your sins and atonement for your sins and your wrongdoing, and you come to the curtain and you're reminded every time, I'm not worthy enough to be in the presence of God. Every time as you pass it off, you say, I can't even stand in the presence of God. That's how terrible I am. That barrier is removed. It's gone. We can stand in the presence of God. Because Jesus was our scapegoat. He took the blame. He took the fall willingly. And then he became our lamb. That tore the greatest barrier a way that we might have our new beginning. We don't have to deflect or pass off our insecurities anymore, so why do we? As a matter of fact, we can own it because we can come. In the pre- That's what Katie Gaither did in her story. She owned it because she knows her identity is in something much greater. And all the people that walk by the cross that day just don't know their identity. We don't have to deflect anymore. We can reconcile it and start our new beginnings. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 10. <clears throat> the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. 
I have come to do your will, my God. First, he says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first. He sets aside the sacrifice of the bulls and the first to establish the second. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And because of his death, you can live. If we finish out the passage in Matthew 27, verse 52 through 53. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. <laughs> what? The what? The bodies came out of the tomb. They were brought back to life. Because of his death, you can live, and you can live restored. We're talking about our church entering our seventh year as a church, and that's the year of the Sabbath, the year of the rest. Because of that barrier being removed, because of that curtain being torn, because we no longer have to deflect and pass off our sin, but that we can own it and be forgiven. Because of this new identity in Christ, we can work from a place of rest, not insecurities. Jesus flipped the tomb so that we can flip the script. Jesus flipped the tomb so that we can flip the script. Because the script that we see it's what we saw how the people treated Jesus. We no longer, had, no longer have to be catching hell like that documentary, but now it can be catching heaven. This is our new beginning. This is our new beginning right here. Catching heaven, flipping the script, doing what's out of the ordinary because we have this new identity in Christ. I'm thankful for uh, Katie Gaither doing the, uh, putting together the little Advent booklet. We did it with our community group as a, a families together. We did it together. And there was this verse that stood out to me in Ephesians 5, 8. It says, for you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Last week, I was in the two-year-old room with my wife back there. And at the end, when they sat them, uh, Mary sat them down at the tables and got them all their snacks, little animal crackers. Um... I started just kind of going around, just kind of messing with the kids and went up to the first kids. Hey, can I, I'm so hungry. Can I have one of your animal crackers? And the kids, no, you know, turned away. Oh, oh but I'm so, I'm so sad. I'm, I'm so hungry. So I went to the next kid. Can I, what about you? Can I have one of your animal crackers? No. I get around to six kids and they're all telling me no. Even my own daughter, right? My own daughter, no. I'm like, oh, you little, you wait till we get home, right? I got all the way around. There's about 10 kids. And the last two kids, the last two kids gave me an animal cracker. So I just broke off a little piece, ate it, and gave it to them. And I just really hyped it up. I said, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the animal cracker. I was so hungry, and I didn't have anything. Thank you so much. Wouldn't you believe? And one by one, all the other kids get a little animal cracker out of their cup, and they're coming over to me. Right? They're running away. And then they're braining more and putting it in my lap. I'm sitting down on the floor. And I'm just, oh, thank you. I didn't have anything. Thank you so much. It's so nice of you. I kind of thought that that might happen, right? That once you have a couple kids do it, then everybody sees how exciting it is, how much fun, how much joy it brings. More kids would do it. But what happened next is what really 
amazed me. I was only asking for animal crackers. And all of a sudden, they all had their sippy cups of water. And one kid brings me a sippy cup of water and wants me to have a drink of his water. Right? Don't worry, I wouldn't put my mouth on y'all's kids' cups, all right? I was pretending, okay? No, no, no worries there, all right? I was pretending. But I was like, oh, thank you. And the next thing you know, eight sippy cups are right in my face. <laughs> They're all trying to share their sippy cups. And then what happened after that is one of them came over and gave me a hug. Before you know it, a bunch of kids are trying to give me a hug. That's flipping the script. That's flipping the script. I think in our society, what, what would have been easiest for me to be that outcast, right? After no one sharing with me, that outcast would be easy as a gain of people to just, for me to become the, the focus and the target of blame or ridicule or mockery. But instead, in flipping the script, in an act of selfless love, it just spread and it escalated, right? If we can know our identity in Christ, and we can know that our barriers removed, and we can know that we have a new beginning, then it's time to flip the script. Join our mission in the church to love God, love community, love people. <laughs> Join a community group, right? To work from your... I always make my pitch for community group. I think you all know that by now, right? Join a community group, right? To work from a place of rest. Not to be burdened by having compassion for people, but to know who you are in Christ. And to work from that place of rest. To flip the script and change the world one person at a time. That's how we're going to get to our preferred ending. When we use our beginning like that. Like the story of the two-year-old kids back there. Pray with me. Father God, we just praise you, God. We know you were resurrected. We know that we have a new beginning in you. Well, God, we thank you that that was made possible by sending your one and only begotten son to not only be the scapegoat when he didn't deserve it, but to be our lamb as well, to remove that barrier. God, we thank you for making a way, for having a plan. We thank you for Jesus carrying out your will. You desired this, God. You did not have to, God, but you willed it and you desired it that we might be one with you. That we would not be separated by a curtain, but to be able to stand in your presence, God. You have made us new and you have made us whole. But God, I pray for us as a church, as individuals, as families, that we would own this new beginning that we would no longer deflect our own insecurities, no longer deflect our own wrongdoings and deflect them onto others or, or elsewhere. But that owning our identity in you, that we would flip the script, God. That we would find those ways, find those open doors, God. Find those ways to plug in to the community and to those around us. That we might see the world change for you. That we might live out in John when the Pharisees said, there is nothing we can do. See how the whole world has gone after Jesus. May we say that ourselves in our community, in our church. That we might look and say, look how the whole world has gone after Jesus. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.